In an environment of health disparities amplified by a national pandemic, racial injustice, Providence is committed to improving diversity, equity, and inclusion in our communities, workplaces, schools, and more. What happens now? How do we cope? What's the impact on our overall health and mental wellness? The Culture of Health will focus on what the future of healthcare looks like in today's changing culture. Together, we will discuss how we turn the conversation of culture and healthcare into lasting and meaningful action. Hello, everyone, and welcome to our virtual town hall meeting. Thank you for being here. I'm your host, Kevin McConnick. Before we start, I want to thank Providence for bringing all of these amazing voices together. And I also want to thank Dash Radio for giving us this platform. Uh, today, we're going to be talking about uh, BIPOC mental health. And when I say BIPOC, I mean Black, Indigenous, people of color. Uh, talking about just uh, how do we how do we really have a better understanding of mental health in uh, in the BIPOC community? It's absolutely crucial as we move forward in and how the world is viewed and how people view the world. Um, and so, I'd like to really start uh, by talking to um, and introducing you to uh, some of our panelists. And so, I'd like each one of them to introduce themselves. I'll start on our list um, with our, our first panelist. Uh, Chris Thomas, if you could just kind of tell us a little bit about yourself. Absolutely. Well, thank you very much for having uh, myself and the defensive line as a part of this important uh, segment and episode, and uh, I appreciate being here. Uh, my name is Chris Thomas. I'm the wife. I'm, the, I'm married to my wife, Martha Thomas, who uh, we've been married for 36 years. I have a daughter, Ella, who unfortunately died in the 2018, and a son, Solomon, uh, who is, plays in the NFL. We live outside of a Dallas, Texas, a place called uh, Coppell. Uh, I'm in. I'm from the consumer product good industry, working for uh, Fortune 500 companies like Procter and Gamble and Frito Lay, Alberta Culver, and Fashion Fair Cosmetics. Uh, and uh, looking forward to today's uh, important conversation. Absolutely, thank you, and welcome, uh, welcome you here. We really appreciate you being being here. Also, we have today Dr. Gaston Rougeau Burns. Uh, uh, Dr. R.B., as we like affectionately call him here in Lubbock, Texas, introduce yourself and tell us a little bit about yourself. Absolutely, absolutely. So uh, just like you were saying earlier, my full name is Dr. Rujo Burns. Most people just call me Dr. R.B. Um, I kind of do two things. I, I'm, I'm kind of almost like the glue person for our Lubbock, Texas, West Texas community. I do a lot of psychological evaluations for our foster care youth here in our community, uh, helping them get placed, also helping them understand if they might have any issues with emotions or uh, behavior, cog cognitive stuff, things like that. Um, also, my private practice, I do a lot of therapy with couples, families, individuals, small kids. So I'm kind of almost a jack of all trades in some aspects, but um, my big goal is helping people using what I know in terms of psychology, um, where I was educated, um, and be bringing those things that are really present in our school-based places to our real-life places. Absolutely. Thank you so much for being here, Dr. R.B. And last but certainly not least, we have Jose Lopez. Uh, Mr. Lopez, thank you for being here. Share a little bit about yourself. Oh, well, thank you for having me. My name is Jose Lopez, uh, also known as Josecito Lopez or, or the Riverside Rocky. Uh, I'm a professional boxer. I've been boxing for half of my life and, uh, you know, boxing is what I do. So anytime I get a, an opportunity to bring awareness to, to men mental health, is a great opportunity to take advantage of it. Absolutely, we thank you and welcome you uh, to our uh, conversation here today. I, I know it's a very important conversation that we wanna have about specifically BIPOC men's mental health. Um, it's so important when you have gifted people such as yourselves 
um, that can articulate a message uh, for you all to have a platform to do that. I'm glad we are able to do that today. Uh, you all are gifted people. And I think what's important is that we find our gift in our life, but also more than that, that we share our gift. And, and that's certainly what I know you guys are going to be doing with us today. Um, just just kind of um, to get us started, we'll talk about as COVID you know, has, has ravaged us. Uh, mental health has been on the rise. It's been a crisis. Uh, various stressors that, that have come in play, obviously economic stressors, the uncertainty of the future uh, and isolation, they all pose a pretty, uh, pretty big threat to our communities that we serve and that we live in. You combine that with what we've dealt with over the last 24 months, racial injustices and brutalities happening all over our country. And it's important, especially uh, because of that, that we work to reduce the negative stigma around men's mental health, especially BIPOC mental health, with all the trauma that has gone on. And so that's really what we're here today. So today's town hall is really gonna focus on why a stigma around mental health really exists in cultural households. And what are some of those ways and resources to improve and support one's mental health uh, today? So I thank you all for being here and we're gonna, get, we're gonna dive right into some of the questions and conversation I'd like to have. And really the first conversation is around kind of mental health in the home and what that looks like. And so as I look at, um, you know, we, we've all done a lot of different things. I just wanna start on a base level uh, and we'll start with Chris. Kind of tell me, it's 2021's wrapping up. We're at the end of the year going into the holiday season. How are you feeling about the year and what's one thing you're proud that you accomplished this year, Chris? Mm, uh, great question, Kevin. Thank you very much for the opportunity to ask. I. I mean, I feel like 2021 and 2020 have been like five years rolled up into like a year and a half, two or wow. two years. So much has gone on. And I, as I think about 2021, I think about the good, the bad, and the ugly. I think about, you know, the good. Uh, there's been some significant things happened in my life personally. My wife and I uh, celebrated 36 years. I saw my son rehabilitate from, you know, ACL surgery and come back and have a very good year. Uh, and I also think that there's been a very proactive and positive change uh, in the White House uh, as it relates to empathy and compassion and non-racist behavior. Uh, I think of the ugly, I think of the January 6th riot, and I think of just how COVID has impacted uh, people of color. And we're still trying to recover from this. Uh, but I think of the bad, I still think of, you know, January uh, 23rd of this year would be the third year anniversary of my daughter Ella dying by suicide. And um, that's hard to deal with even on a daily basis, but three years past is still, you know, sharp and, and, and it's painful. Uh, but also um, I, I think of the one best thing that's happened to uh, my life in 2021 has been the launch of the defensive line where we are trying to normalize the conversation of mental wellness, of suicide prevention, of helping uh, leaders of young people, particularly leaders of young people of color, understand the signs and understand how they can help drive whole health for our young young uh, people of color. And so uh, that was launched in May of this year. And I'm just so excited that we're already making inroads in Dallas, Nevada, and California, and leveraging Solomon's NFL platform to get the the, no, the news out there about taking care of our youth uh, and trying to end this uh, uh, pandemic of suicide amongst people of color. Wow, thank you so much. That's a, that's very powerful to hear. You know, and, and we all will go through the good, bad, and the ugly. And a part of I think 
what we need to deal with in mental health is that that's a reality in life. So uh, thank you so much for sharing that uh, to us, uh, well, with us, Chris. Um, what about you, Jose? Um, tell us a little bit about kind of how you're feeling about this last year and what about, what about this last year are you really excited about or, or proud that you accomplished? Well, uh, going in oh, this previous year, uh, it's been tough for a lot of families. You know, I've dealt with, uh, you know, losing some, a couple of my family members, you know, so I know everyone has their own struggle, not only financially, but emotionally. And, uh, talking about your mental health, talking about what's going on, it's, it's really important. I know, uh, growing up in a Latin community, a Latin, uh, Hispanic household, uh, mental health was never really a topic or subject that we ever talked about. So, you know, realizing now and understanding now as a, as an adult, how important it is to speak your problems, talk about what's going on. Uh, it's very important. And I realize, you know, now as an adult that this is, this is important and it's as important as, as important as your physical health. Well, thank you so much, Jose. I, I would agree with you. I've been talking to folks lately um, about the same thing that we, we go see the doctor about our physical health often, but uh, you know, I've really come to the mindset that it's important that we do that just as often, if not more with our mental health. So thank you so much for sharing. Uh, Dr. RB, what about you? What does this last year in 2021 kind of look like for you the last 10 months or so? And then tell us what's the one thing you're proud that you accomplished this year? You know, to, to kind of wrap some of those things together, I, I very much love that this year we've given space almost as a community, a global community, we've given space for each other just to feel these things. Um, during some of the riots, during some of the, uh, and I was specifically at the January 6th riot, but then during some of the racial injustice issues as well that we've experienced over this past year, one of the really interesting things I would have people call me or clients want to discuss this thing and they would look for an answer. And a lot of times as a provider, you know, as a licensed psychologist, I try to help them find the answers on their own. And these were problems that didn't have immediate answers. And one of the beautiful things about that is that sometimes it's not always about trying to solve a problem, but just about trying to hear the problem. And I really think that in terms of the thing that I'm proud of that we're all doing is that for the first time in a long time, I felt really hurt. You know, as a, as a black man, as a black man who is a who is a provider in mental health, I felt understood. Like people were like, "This must be really hard for you, for us, for all of us." And I don't know what to do. And I was like, "Yeah, I feel that a lot." And so I feel really proud that that we've taken that step because I think for a long time I very much felt like we that wasn't a thing that we could do that we couldn't talk about mental health, that we couldn't validate that somebody would, would go through something. I had a friend the other day at the gym. He's a, a cook over here in Lubbock. And he said, uh, I'm able to, he, t he tells his boss from time to time, like he was like, I need a mental health day, you know, in a very serious way, he'll communicate that he's just not doing great that day. And she, and she'll be like, that's fine. You know, take your time. And I think that just this sense that we can give somebody the time and the runway they need to get to where they want to get to. And that it doesn't have to be that you need to just suck it up and and do better or be wow. better but that we're just saying hey it's this is hard and it's okay that it's hard and so i'm i'm proud that i'm that we're getting there i'm proud that i'm giving myself the grace to get there to not figure it all out um to not run the race like a sprint but to treat it like a journey wow that's powerful uh, dr rb 
Uh, and I, I heard a lot of things that, that I've been kind of grappling with and, and thinking about on my own, you know, thinking about my own mental health and the mental health of my family. And, and so, you know, you hear about loss, you hear about trauma, and, and we are socialized to, to, to say, you know, suck it up. You, you, you know, you just, you need to get, get up, get your butt up and get going. And, and the reality is we need to be heard. Sometimes that's all we need. And, and that really does give us a kind of a victorious outcome, even in that. So really wonderful um, uh, uh, discussion so far. Um, Dr. Uh, RB, since we're with you already, let me, let me ask you a question. Um, I know you do a lot of work here in our community. Uh, you and I both serve on the 100 Black Men of West Texas here and do a lot of uh, great work and, and, and you're the chair for our, our mental health uh, work that we do. Um, but what, tell us a little bit about the statistics um, uh, about the changes in BIPOC mental health over the last year and over the last years, especially the last couple of years. You know, that's a, that's a tough question because it doesn't tell us anything we didn't already know. You know, we already knew that anxiety and depression and difficulties with our mood or our behavior or with substance abuse, we already knew these were problems in our community. You know, I don't think anybody was doubting that, but I, I almost think that what the pandemic forced us to do was to kind of say, okay, um, I've been in this marriage and I'm speaking purely hypothetically, but I've been in this marriage for a long time and, and now I'm with my partner and we, we can't go anywhere. And I realize that we don't communicate, or I realize that like I don't really have a relationship with my kids, or I realize that I don't like my mother-in-law living with me. These are a lot of examples that uh, seem like they apply to me, but I think the goal is that we've all felt those things. We've all felt that sense of of the pandemic almost kind of shrinking our worldview. And so, you know, they we used to say, "Wow, we're diagnosing a lot of kids with autism recently." Is that because? it's happening more. It's like, no, it's not happening more. It just means that we're better at finding it. We're better at discovering it. We're better at noticing when a child's impaired. And I think that when we talk about the mental health of our communities, these things have always been difficult. They've always been problematic. We've just never discussed them. We've never had really a way to discuss them or almost been forced to discuss them. And if the pandemic has taught us anything, it's that, you know, this is going to be a process of focusing on us to help others. Yeah, absolutely. And, it, and even for the communities of color, just acknowledging that this is a reality for us, I think is really important. Uh, so thank you so much for that. Uh, Chris, um, you're the co-founder of the Defensive Line. That you just mentioned in your introduction that this organization or, uh, that you've started very, very, uh, very recently. Can you tell us a little bit about what your organization does, kind of why you started the organization, uh, you know, but what it does for communities uh, of color, BIPOC communities? and specifically youths and adults um, uh, that serve them. Absolutely, thank you. Um, yeah, so the defensive line was launched in May of this year and the vision of the defensive line is a world where no young person of color dies by suicide. And, you know, we really believe that we can end the pandemic of uh, mental health and uh, suicide by empowering life-saving connections and being the community where people get the resources as well as their their tools and we're going into schools we're going we're targeting schools that have at least 50 percent people of color and we're going to go in there and train them on a couple elements first part is leveraging the american foundation for suicide prevention's more than sad suicide prevention training which helps educators coaches janitors anybody who's leading young people of color help them understand the signs and give them the tools and the wherewithal to help reduce suicide. And then we come in with an, another part of the workshop where we 
teach our defensive lines, the D lines where we ask people to don't ignore the gut, to listen for the signs, to evidence the concerns and then the concerns to create a supportive environment for these young people so that they can get the help they need. And when we go in here, we have people raise their hands saying, hey, I didn't realize it was okay to talk about my mental health. As Dr. RB mentioned before, we're getting to a point now where it's where we're normalizing the conversation and people are listening to people say, you know, it's not just, you know, focusing in on my physical health, it's also focusing in on how I create mental wellness, how do I create whole health. And these discussions are, are excellent and we get people understand how they how, what the protocol is for the school to reduce suicide and to recognize people who are at risk and to help do this on a continual basis because our training is not a one off it's like a multi-year approach where we go in and assess where schools are at and we put together a three to five year plan to help these schools reduce suicide so uh, it's been a phenomenal start we're having great progress here in dallas in vegas we we did a, a project or launch a workshop in Miami. So it's really making a difference and we're just looking forward to continuing this momentum and helping uh, reduce suicide of young people of color. Wow, absolutely. I think that's so incredibly important. And what I heard you say is identify and give people tools. And that's so incredibly important. Uh, if we're gonna, if we're gonna, we're talking about a pandemic, but we, but we do also have a you know, somewhat of uh, an issue uh, when it comes to uh, mental health and the issues we're dealing with every day. So mm -hmm. these things, as Dr. RB said, have been going on a long time. They've, they've always been present in our communities. So why do you think it's so important in this moment at this time that we engage and that we move forward in this space of understanding, talking about and destigmatizing um, mental health? I really believe that if you look at the data, because it's the second leading cause of death now for people ages 10 to 19, we got to stop this. We're losing our youth. And we, we got to understand that this is, it's okay to reach out and get help. So I really believe that's the key reason why we need to do this is because it has been increasing. In fact, when the report came out, the Black and Christian report came out, when they talked about between 2001 and 2017 for kids aged 13 and 19, that Black female suicide rate was up 182% and for black males, it was up 60%. So wow. that plus the fact that you think about the overall suicide rate is going down amongst the white population, but it's going up amongst people of color. You know, the black rate is two times the, the white rate, the is three times for indigenous youth, and it's a leading cause of death for Asian youth. So this is the, the time is now to stop this uh, epidemic so that we can save our youth. Absolutely. And that's what it's all about is saving our youth and and really uh, reducing the trauma associated with um, not dealing with our mental health appropriately. So thank you so much for that. Um, Jose, um, you, you're part of a community I know here in, in Lubbock, uh, here in Texas, uh, that's growing um, by leaps and bounds, uh, uh, specifically, probably within the next 15 years, a Latin community will be the majority population here in Texas. Uh, for sure for sure here in Lubbock in the area that that we do business in um and so that's really important uh in understanding uh you know Latin Latin households and Latinx households I want to ask you a question was mental health talked about at your house at your dinner table was it was it something that that was common that you you guys brought up or or was it not and then why or why not why do you think that's the case well mental health was never spoken of at my house never a dinner topic never 
a situation you you're supposed to just brush it off or oh you're just being lazy and you know mm. it was it was one of those things that that doesn't exist you know so it was never a topic um i don't remember one conversation or or one discussion with my parents about it you know it's like no you're you're you can't be you know down or depressed uh you know you're just being lazy get up go outside and you know clean the yard or you know so it was never really a, a, a something that was dealt with you know it was kind of just brushed behind uh thrown behind you know is, is it doesn't exist you know in in uh you know at least in my parents eyes and i know it it went like that for for most of the latin community so uh you know we just brushed it off and, and it's not the correct way to deal with it yeah yeah, you know, so and, and and Kevin, one of the things that I, I thought that you brought up a really good point, Jose, is that especially being a fighter, you know, you train for what four months, six months, a year before you take your next fight. Yeah, no. So we're constantly training, but it's a grueling ten to twelve week training camp uh, where we break down. You know, not yeah. only physically but emotionally, it's a, it takes a toll on us. And for us to put on this tough guy persona or this tough guy mentality that, you know, uh, yeah, physically we're, we're able to take hits, but emotionally, you know, we take hits as well. And, uh, you know, dealing with them and not talking about it is not always the best way, but yeah. we got We have to do that for the moment's being at least. But I, I think that that same principle applies is that you train 10 to 12 weeks. So that way, when you step in the ring, you know what you're doing, you know, what, yeah. what would happen if you never trained? mentally you wouldn't be ready because you yeah. know you're not physically ready so yeah. you you're losing the fight before actually getting physically beat wow and yeah. and and i think that's exactly what happens when we talk about generationally what we do in our communities of colors not all the time but sometimes is that we say be strong be strong mm -hmm. be strong and we never teach you how you know we never do the burpees or we never do the heavy bag or we never do the sparring with the headgear and we never do the things that help us get to that place so we can be strong so that way when my day doesn't go the way that it's supposed to go my first thought isn't well maybe i just don't need to be here anymore yeah and so i think that's kind of what this is about when you're unpacking generationally how these things work is that it's a lot like boxing it's being able to say that if i can show my children that dad makes mistakes that dad knows when to apologize if i can show my children that I feel sad. And here's what I do. You know, dad loves to go for a walk when he feels sad. He loves to read a good book. He loves to take some time and, and de-stress when he feels sad. If I can show them those things, I can train them for years and years and years. So that way, the day that they do step into the ring and they feel those things, that they'll know what to do. Those are all amazing points, Dr. RB, and, and certainly things that I, I would certainly highlight. Um, you know, you know, as Jose talked about, you know, my experience as an African-American male growing up here in Lubbock, Texas, was that uh, we didn't discuss at all or that, you know, we would be uh, uh, seen as weak um, if, if we talked about or, or said we were even dealing with such such things as mental health. Um, you know, there's always a pathology to where we are right now. We always have to go back in that path and just try to figure those things out. And that's what mental health allows us to do. And so not having this, you know, what you would call in the, maybe the Latinx community, this machismo kind of tough guy attitude, or even in, in the African-American community, that's kind of what we were 
we were grown up to be and, and, and what we were told. And, and for me specifically in the African-American community, I can also say that what, what was told to me is that, that you don't take your problems to anybody but God. So, and mm -hmm. so that was one of the other things that really, I think, when I think about my experience uh, from a personal standpoint that was there, and I don't think it's that our parents didn't care I don't think our parents knew or understood the significance and how important it was just as just as it's important in physical health. So thank you. Thank you so much, Jose and Dr. RB, uh, for those responses. Um, I'd like to move on to uh, a little bit different topic. Um, you know, between 1991 and, and 2017, suicide attempts among black and adolescents increased 73 percent, while attempts among white youth decreased, uh, uh, decreased. Um, so increase with black adolescents, but decrease with white youth, according to an analysis of more than 198,000 high school students nationwide. That's some recent, um, some recent research that was done. And so uh, other studies have shown an elevated risk of suicide among African-American boys between five and 11, which I think you mentioned a little bit, Chris. Um, so let me ask, let me ask you all, and I'll start with Chris, why do you think men and specifically people of color are more likely to commit suicide? You know, um, I, I really feel that um, part of it is how we try to cope with our whole health. And uh, as you and Dr. Irby mentioned, uh, there are a lot of times that we try to just uh, put our head in the sand and uh, mm. weren't true to ourselves and be authentic and vulnerable and listen to how people are actually feeling on an everyday basis. And I think uh, realizing we just can't pray this way. And, you know, God gave us a re reason to go to doctors to fix our arms. It gave us a reason to go to doctors to fix our brain, which is the most complex organ in the body as well. I, I got to believe that it has to come back also to America's original sin, uh, racism. When you think there are studies that talk about how the average adolescent, Black adolescent goes through five microaggressions of racism a day. Uh, and you think about the fact that, you know, there are over three shootings per day. And uh, I mean, it was just this year where, you know, we finally had a, a conviction of, uh, of an unarmed man uh, dying at the hands of a police person. So those things have a significant impact on our psyche. You have adverse child experiences that, you know, unfortunately, African-American community has a much more adverse child experiences than uh, the white community. Uh, and then there's the lack of mental health care. Well, we, we're, I think African-Americans are, are 13, 14% of the US. We've got like three to 4% of the psychiatrists and therapists. And, and then there's the whole cultural competency piece. I mean, we gotta make sure that doctors understand what we go through on an every, everyday basis. So those are some of the things that I think that we go through um, uh, that are impacting and having people die by suicide, which to me, uh, uh, I say deliberately die by suicide versus commit suicide because, you know, people don't commit heart attacks. They don't commit kidney disease. They sure. die by kidney disease. They die by heart attacks. And people die by suicide because it's a wow. mental health condition. Wow. Uh, there's imbalance in the brain. And it's unfortunately uh, that some people, uh, the pain is so great that that's the only avenue they feel they can go down uh, to heal that pain. So uh, I think those are some of the reasons um, that we're having, we're seeing this increase in suicide ideation and suicide uh, completion. Um, and hopefully we can work together with folks like, like Providence and the defensive line and AFSP, et cetera, to help make a difference to stop this 
Wow. Yeah, it's, it, it was, it's absolutely critical that we do that. And I so appreciate your perspective. And, and that is a perspective we need to have that, that it is just like any of those other things that we die from. And so thank you for bringing that um, to bear. You know, that vulnerability is so important. That being true to ourselves is so important. But even recognizing those childhood, um, those childhood uh, kind of adverse childhood experiences uh, are really extremely important. Dr. RB, uh, let me ask you a question. Uh, associated with that, you know, we talk about the fact that that people of color are more likely to have um, to have suicide uh, uh, to have suicide ideation and, and complete suicide. But I have a question, kind of a little bit off of that. You know, how important then? You know, as Chris talked about, there's only three to four percent of the of the um, folks that you can talk to therapists that are African American or people of color. Um, how important is, is the conversation about cultural competence as it relates to that and having someone that maybe understands, looks like you and understands those pathologies? Man, that is such a good question. And it's also so multifaceted, just like what Chris was saying is that, you know, this is, this, this is not just one answer, you know, not just for your question, Kevin, but also just for the one you asked, Chris, this is about generational trauma. This is about access to resources, all those different things. And then on top of that, you add the fact that when you go to a provider who doesn't look like you, they just may not understand on a fundamental level what you're trying to say. You know, I had a really interesting experience with this recently. My wife uh, went to the doctor for something really benign. She's been having some allergies. And uh, the doctor was a, was a guy. And he kept asking her what she did for a living. And he was just really confused by what she did and, and what she was a teacher of. And then he ran the same test that she'd had run before for her allergies. And he was like, well, you have allergies to pollen. And she's like, I, I know that, like I told you that. And it was just this really apparent window for me when she was telling me this story is I was like, he didn't see you. Like he just, he didn't, he legitimately just didn't see you. And I think sometimes that's what happens for us um, as men of color, you know, as, as people of color is that we just sometimes are not seen. You know, um, I've had clients come to me just because they're like, man, you look like me, like, like you get it. You understand what it's like to go to college. You understand what it's like um, to maybe have things not go your way, to be having a good day and to get stopped. And then to all of a sudden you're having a, a different experience. You know, um, you understand what it's like to have friends who are police officers, but also to, to feel unsafe sometimes, you know, and just being being in this dichotomy. And so I, I think when you're talking about representation and why it's so important, I think it's about that fundamental understanding. You know, you guys mentioned earlier about the importance of therapy. And here's a, here's a kind of a behind the curtain fact. Nobody really knows why therapy works, you know? Like we know that, that if I do certain types of therapy, if I do like cognitive behavioral therapy, we know that it's effective. But it turns out it doesn't really matter what type of therapy we do that I can do cognitive behavioral, I can have you talk to an empty chair, um, I can have you sit on the couch and interpret your dreams, and that what really matters is the relationship you have with your provider, proving that there's something fundamental about the relationship that we have with each other and as people that helps us get better. And I think it's the same thing when you talk about mental health care and about physical health care, is that when you don't have people who look like you, then sometimes you can just miss things, especially if that provider is not open to knowing where their bias begins, right? Because I mean, you're right, like, like we may not, I may not be able to find another black physician to be able to see me, but that doesn't mean that they can't understand if they're not able to, if, if, they, if they're, if that does not mean that they are unwilling, well, cut, let me cut that, let me figure that out. That, that, mm, I'll just scrap it. Point is, therapy's great. 
I, I finished it great earlier. I'm, I'm not. I'm not going to go back to it. Okay. Okay. Thank you, Doctor RB. Uh, thank you so much for that response. Um, Jose, what about you? What What are your thoughts about why people of color specifically, and maybe you might even be more specific with the Latinx community from your perspective, why is it that they're more likely to attempt suicide or have this ideation of suicide? I think the fact, uh, mainly the fact that there's no awareness, you know, we don't necessarily seek help and there's not enough out there and enough resources out there. And that's, this is why this is so important to bring awareness to, uh, you know, not only seek help, speak, talk, talk about it, you know, and we tend to, at least in my Latin community, sweep things under the rug. We don't really deal with them. We just brush it off, pretend it didn't happen, but you know what, it, it's still there. You know, emotional hits are gonna happen. So, um, you know, uh, the fact that we're bringing awareness is, it's, it's huge already, um, you know, and finding other resources to seek help, I think that's gonna be the most important thing. Yeah, absolutely. And I, I agree with you so much. It kind of leads me to my next question. I'll, and I'll ask you this, Jose, you know, you talked about and, and we both talked about how in our experience uh, in our homes, at our dinner table, wherever we didn't talk about it was taboo uh, to, to have to bring up a subject of mental health. Right. And even people use the word crazy. Right. Uh, with us in, in my in our in our particular, um, um, you know, in the black culture for me. And, and so my question really to you is, when you were kind of growing up, who did you talk to when you were going through a tough time that you didn't understand? Or if that didn't happen till later, when did that happen? And then who did you talk to? You know what, uh, there's important roles or, or people that you have in your life. For me, it was coaches. I had a couple coaches. I had a boxing coach at a young age since I started boxing when I was eight years old. So I had a boxing coach at a young age and I had a uh, track coach that I really, you know, spilled what I was going through, um, you know, being bullied, you know, and I was able to talk to him and he helped me. He helped me deal with some of my mental health uh, early on, you know, when my parents couldn't, uh, didn't know better, didn't, uh, didn't have quite have the education about how, how mental health can really affect your life. Uh, you know, not only at a young age, but as you grow up and as you become an adult. So uh, I'm thankful for, for those mentors, for those good people, uh, those coaches uh, early on in my life that really helped me uh, uh, get through those tough moments. Very good. Thank you so much. And we, we all need those people in our lives. And, and what I found that is as I reflect back, you don't really think about it at the time as mental health and them helping you through and being there for you. But as you grow up and as you learn and as you reflect back, you say, wow, you know, this person and this person and this person were very instrumental and so important to me getting through. And so I know I've learned that as well. Um, let me ask you, Chris, same question. Kind of when you were growing up, what were some of the what were some of the or who are some of the people that you talked to when you were going through tough times? And, and I want to add a little bit of a tag on to the question. What made them a good person to talk to? What made them a good listener? Hmm. Well, it's, that's deep. So, cause I can tell you, as Dr. RB and Jose said, you know, we didn't talk about mental health at the dinner table. We didn't talk about feelings. <laughs> uh, <laughs> it was just not, you know, uh, it was like a four letter word. 
And, you know, I, I, it was really like Jose, it was, for me, it was coaches. It was mentors that I had in the business growing up through the consumer product good industry. And then my it was almost like a journey, though, because I, 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 I opened up a little bit more each time I went through this process. So coaches, you know, uh, then it was the mentors and it was like I found a really good pastor that I you know, was able to open up to. And, and then it finally led to where I finally felt it was OK to go see a therapist. And, you know, one of the things that my son Solomon says, and he's in one of these last bastions of, you know, total male masculinity, the NFL locker room, you know, it took a lot, a lot for him to come out and open up and say, look, you know, it's okay to not be okay. It's okay for me to open up and say that, you know, I need to go see a therapist. And I went through my similar journey a couple, three years before he went on his journey. Uh, which unfortunately was the catalyst was our daughter who died by suicide. But, you know, when I finally got to a therapist because I needed help with my marriage, I needed help with me dealing with, you know, some of the pain I was dealing with at work because I was getting promoted, people were getting promoted above me and I was having issues with self-esteem. So those, that, 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 that journey, it opened up more and more each, each, each path from coaches to mentors to clergymen to the therapist where I totally opened up and I got really good help and assistance because they listened, they held me accountable, uh, they didn't let me BS my way through some of the issues that I was trying to feel sorry for myself and they held me accountable. Uh, and they also showed compassion, empathy and love and they gave me the option of where I can go. They didn't tell me what I had to do. They said, here are some ways you can go about this. And, yeah. and I had some things I did correctly. Some things I had to do a couple, three times because I was hardheaded, but they right. allowed me to learn that way. So uh, those are the skills that I think that helped me really understand that therapy is okay. And then that led to taking care of myself is okay, whether it's through journaling, meditation, yoga, you know, physical, mental health practices, those are the things that helped me get there. Wow, so so great, and I, and I agree with you. Um, we're, we're doing some initiatives here at Providence that really are talking uh, to uh, modeling, lead as a leader um, here at Providence. You know, how do I model that it's okay not to be okay, mm -hmm. and that it's okay to check in with your mental health, because Providence offers, offers some wonderful um, wonderful um, benefits related to being able to see a therapist. And I, for the first time about three weeks ago, sat mm. down, um, I'm on my third session tomorrow with a therapist and it has been eye-opening as I, I, you know, I, I think, man, yeah, I'm, I'm doing pretty good. But just like in the body, something can be laying innate and, and, and dormant and that you don't even know uh, until you do, until you have somebody come and, and you know do the assessment, and and I found some things, and it's been really, um, uh, it's been really good to do that. So, and I think me being able to articulate that uh, as an African American man to my my son and to others has been also helpful, as I've been talking about it quite a bit. So that accountability, that compassion, that empathy, that love that you talk about is also incredibly important as you kind of move and, and, and grow perspective and and again destigmatize um kind of um mental health and, and why that's important dr rb um so let me ask you a question i'm gonna kind of move on a little bit um you you've done a lot of work as you mentioned in um uh, with 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 um parents uh with with you know couples uh with um children and you know, being able to vocalize uh, mental health is really, really important. 
So what are some of the ways that we as parents, specifically BIPOC parents, uh, can teach our kids? And what are some of the things we should be talking about and doing uh, to um, give them a safe place and have that psychological safety to open up to people? What are some of the things uh, that, that they should be doing or how should we teach our young boys and yeah. boys about? You know, that actually goes, that dovetails perfectly with your last question too, which is that, you know, that person for me was my dad, but that wasn't, not in the way that you might think. You know, my parents were divorced and they got divorced when I was really young. And so my dad and I's relationship has been a lot of work as we built that. And when he got divorced, he had a lot of guilt. And I think instead of kind of hiding that guilt, you know, he was very upfront about like, I wish that this could have worked. And I, I, I wish that this would have looked like it's supposed to look like in the postcard. And he was really upfront about that. And I think sometimes we have this fear that if we, if we're upfront about this, that if we ask a person like, are you hurting? Do you wanna hurt yourself? It's gonna make them wanna do these things. Or that if we say, you know, hey, are you thinking about getting a divorce? It's gonna make them wanna do these things. Instead of saying, wait a minute, if I, if I bring this up for you, this just gives you space to talk about, it, you know? And this gives you space to experience it and to feel it. And so with my father, a lot of our relationship was us being able to say that, hey, it's okay to feel these things okay to feel this guilt and i think that when we talk about the things that i try to teach my clients to do things that we try to teach our local parents in west texas to do things that i try that i try to do with my own children is to just say hey it's okay to feel these things this thing that's uncomfortable this thing that we don't want to talk about whatever it is it's okay to feel you know wow. um I have, I have clients who i deal with a lot who kind of have impulsive thoughts and not so much thoughts of like you know that where they're they're way out there but just where they'll they'll have a thought about themselves or somebody else that they just don't like and they they try to push it down you know and they'll have another thought they'll try to push it down you know or they'll try to say well i don't want to feel this i don't want to feel this and they just kind of continually try to box these things up you know and what ends up happening is that after a while if you sweep so many things under the rug you just get a lumpy rug that's right and i think that this is about being able to say you know what these things get better and it's almost paradoxical but if you give this thing space to breathe then things end up improving you know um and so for a lot of that it does two things it shows our kids what to do but it also lets them know that you know what this is normal that it's normal to have concerns about your job performance it's normal to struggle in the marriage you know it's it's normal to be unsure if you're being a good dad. Now, it doesn't mean that we go on feeling those things forever, but it does mean that when you feel those things, it's okay to, to, to know that that feeling's okay here. Let me ask you this, because I, I agree with that, and this kind of goes off a little bit, but not really, because what I saw a lot was nothing. I didn't see my parents making those things normal and saying, I didn't see the fights, I didn't see, of the struggle. I didn't see how you get up. All we saw was what looked to be like almost perfection. And I think so many times if we're if that's what's modeled in front of us, uh, we we when we don't meet that expectation or we, we we can't get to that, you know, kind of that utopian place that we feel a certain way about that. And so oh, how important yeah. it is how important is it for parents to let people let their children see? Yeah. So here's, here's, here's some fun, a fun thought. We used to think research-wise that it was bad to fight in front of your kids, right? That if you did that, that all they would see was you fighting and it would somehow make not only the marriage deteriorate, but it would show your kids that this is what you're supposed to do. And what, it, what we've instead learned is that 
it's not so much whether they should or shouldn't see you fight that what this is about is is how you disagree right you know and what your kids see because here's the thing is that when your kids see you and your partner disagree where you say you know what honey when you do this thing it hurts me that i feel sad and your partner says you know i understand that you feel sad and i know that this is hard for you that all of a sudden it helps them be able to say well if mom and dad do this at home then maybe I can do this at school. Maybe this is real for me, right? Maybe I don't have to solve this thing, you know, by running away. Maybe I don't have to solve this thing by drinking or by, you know, finding somebody else who's just gonna love me in the way that I want that I want to be loved. Maybe this is about being able to apply the things that I see at home. You know, that actually ties really well into one of our initiatives here in West Texas, but we're doing a couples conference in December 4th at the YWCA. And one of the big things that we're doing is that we're saying, we're saying, hey, if you're in a relationship, come on by. You know, we're gonna do about six hours of, of activities and skills and fun things and raffle stuff to be able to say, how can we get to that good relationship that we wanna get to? Yeah. Because I think just, it doesn't just happen. That perfection doesn't just happen. It happens through hard work. Absolutely, absolutely. I think you're exactly right. So thank you so much for sharing that. I want to go back. You were talking about sometimes fighting and Jose, you are a fighter. You know, that's your trade. That's what you do. That's your profession. And you've been a part of the boxing community, as you said, for a long time. You take these physical hits all the time and, you know, probably have help healing in those ways and different things that you do for your body. But what, what about the emotional hit you take? What does that look like and how do you heal from that? Well, emotional hits are going to happen to everyone. It's almost inevitable. So uh, how you deal with them, it's really what's the most important part where it can either help you or affect you even longer. So how you do, I think for me, what has worked for me and in, in, in the business that I'm in, health and fitness, you know, it's uh, a great escape, a great way to, to release you know, and, and feel better about yourself, be healthier, uh, you know, and then, you know, at the same time, be physically uh, stronger, you know, it brings a, a strong mental uh, health to, to your to your benefit, really. So um, health and fitness is, is, is my business, and uh, it, ha it has helped me through my mental health. Thank you so much, Jose. I think that's so important. And, and it can be different things for different people. So we just got to find those things. And, and even through therapy and, and, and taking care of our mental health is, I think, one of the ways we find that. Um, Chris, your, your organization really focuses on adults that work with Black, Indigenous, people of color. Okay. So what are some of the ways you encourage adults to help kids prioritize their mental health and make it not so taboo, make it something they can talk about? Yeah. Uh, so at the defensive line, our whole focus is normalizing the conversation. Uh, it's about people sharing personal stories about their mental wellness, their issues, their concerns, their love, their joy, their hopes, their concerns, and creating these bridges, these bonds together. Because we know when we increase connections, we increase oxytocin levels, which helps you know increase our confidence, helps increase you know just empathy, compassion, all the things that help people want to get along and get better, get along together better. And, and that's what it's all about. It's about loving ourselves. It's about loving those across the table from us, independent of what they look like, what income, what color, what race, you know, what, what, what gender they are, and just loving them and accepting them. 
and not say you have to agree with them all the time, but it's really about how do we connect together and build a better tomorrow. And so that's, it's all about self-love, self-care. It's, it's about making sure we focus on whole health. And just like you go to the dentist to get your teeth fixed, you've got to make sure you're focusing on improving your brain and improving how you work with people. And so that's what it's all about. And you know, in, our, in our classroom, in our, in our workshops, it's all about connecting these bridges of bringing evidence-based uh, technology, resources, tools, information to help leaders teach young people of color how to improve their mental wellness. And so right now we're working with American Foundation for Suicide Prevention. We're working with Providence. We're leveraging all the great tools you guys have to help train and teach these leaders of young people of color for, for, our, young, for our young people. So that's what it's all about. And uh, we want to just continue this path so that we have a world where no young person of color dies by suicide. Yeah, absolutely. It's so critical for us. Um, you talk about some of the approach that, that needs to happen in schools. Anything specifically when you think about, you know, any any couple key things that need to happen in schools with the approach of how we can effectively manage and help with mental health? I think the most important piece is making sure that our states are putting this, putting well, mental wellness and suicide prevention into the curriculum. And not just putting into the curriculum by saying that they have to do it, but also providing the funding to make sure that it happens. Because when that is part of the curriculum, when people are learning about their mental health as a learning about math and English and Shakespeare, it helps create this, this, this continuum of knowledge and, and, and a, a knowledge base that grows from elementary school all the way through college. So we got to get it into the curriculum. We got to make sure that we're teaching this also in our churches. Well, you know, as people are doing confirmation, having clergymen talk about the importance of mental wellness. I recently came across an unbelievable sermon series by Otis Moss III in Chicago, where he talked about, he had a four-part sermon series on, it's okay to not be okay from a leader, from a female, from a male, and from a Christian perspective. When you get it going on in church and in school and in the community, the YMCA's, the Providence, the Covenant Healths of the world, it helps permeate throughout our community. And then it just becomes a regular part, a normal part of the conversation. And those are some of the specific things that need to happen so that this becomes just normal, normalized. Yeah, absolutely. I think that word normalcy, normalizing is what's really, really important. Making it something that is okay to talk about, that's normal, that's regular, that we do. And, and that's, that's what's going to be the thing that helps us. And the more of us that are having this conversation and the more of us that are vulnerable about the conversation, I think the better off we are. Uh, we're getting to the end of our time now. And I just kind of wanted to, before we, uh, before we end it, I want to talk about just from each one of you, if you have anything if there were, if there are any resources, uh, particularly that you would like to talk about as it relates to uh, mental health and uh, specifically with BIPOC communities uh, or communities of color, um, and I don't know, we'll start. Uh, well, either any one of you guys that, that have anything, just kind of, just kind of talk real quickly about those. Chris, you want to start? Oh, no, I, I no. was, I was just gonna say, I, I think the biggest one I think Chris mentioned is just getting a therapist. You know, like we. We, um, a lot of times we'll do this thing where like, we'll get a flat tire and we'll call AAA and we're just like, cool, can you help me out? And then the AAA guy, as I tell my patients, like he doesn't stay with you forever. He's not gonna come home with you. You know, like he's just there for that moment. And so many times when I, when I see parents who are struggling with parenting, who are struggling with marital stuff, you know, they get this fear of just like, well, man, if I do this, am I gonna do this thing forever? 
And sometimes it's, it's just three sessions. Sometimes, you know, I've, I've had patients who are like, well, I'm, I'm pretty good now, you know, or, or they stop coming because they've gotten where they want to get to. And so I, I think the biggest thing, if we, if we say anything, is that if, if this sounds like you, you know, if this sounds like you're feeling stuck and that you're not in the place that, that you want to be, you know, maybe this is about saying, you know what? God gives all sorts of people these amazing gifts. And maybe it's about finding somebody who has this particular gift help you figure out where God wants you to be. Thank you so much, Dr. RB. Yeah, uh, Chris or Jose, do y'all have any particular resources or thoughts on kind of, you know, resources for BIPOC youth yeah. or, or BIPOC community in general? Absolutely. And to Dr. RB's point, uh, there is a, a, a link or a program called Black Emotional and Mental Health being virtual therapists. There's a there's that network, uh, but there's also uh, therapy for Black girls. There's also therapy for Black men. Uh, American Foundation for Suicide Prevention has some great tools. NAMI, SAMHSA, Mental Health America, the defensive line. And then there's also a lot of local support groups Aside from the therapy that Dr. RB mentioned, which I think is, is vital, uh, and there's also a lot of local uh, support groups like here in North Texas uh, for people who are suicide survivors. Suicide uh, survivors. There's a, a organization called Touched by Suicide in Nevada. There is a great organization called Hope Means Nevada that focuses on mental wellness for young people, uh, and they're focusing on people of color. So there, there are a lot of different resources in, locally, nationally. Uh, and the other one I'll mention is uh, the uh, Boris Lawrence Henson Foundation. They have got, they've got great tools as well. And hopefully some of these can be put in the link, but uh, those plus the defensive line are awesome, awesome uh, uh, resources to, to use. Wonderful. Thank you so much for those, for letting us know about those resources. Uh, Jose, do you have anything that you would add as far as resources or anything? Yes, I'd like to say that mental health can affect everybody, anybody, uh, you know, and I'm in, in the boxing business where, you know, guys will look mean and tough and, you know, some of them can't fight. <laughs> so, <laughs> uh, you know, to, to put a, um, a stigma on someone, oh, well, he looks mean and tough and, you know, strong, you know, there's no way he's, you know, weak or, you know, is a, being affected by mental health. That, that's not the case at all. You know, it has nothing to do with it. Um, the toughest of guys suffer through mental health and, you know, me being in the boxing business, you know, I, I know firsthand that, you know, it, boxing is a lonely sport, you know, we're not with a big group of guys, big group of people at the end of the day, guess what, you're going home by yourself, you know, there's nobody else, you know, there's not a teammate to lean on. So I think, uh, you know, getting the right state of mind health wise, nutrition wise, Physically, it's a great start, but also seeking the help of a therapist is it's really important. You know, wow. Jose just said something about that reminding me that I've seen a lot of good athletes use NCAA, uh, like Stanford uses this, this tool called uh, Headspace, Talkspace, Calm. Those are really, really good tools that I've seen athletes like Jose use. Um, in the NCAA high school realm that are aside from therapy, those have been, I've, I've heard those have been very useful as well. Very good. Well, I certainly appreciate you, Chris and Jose and Dr. R R G R G 
RB, I'm sorry, Dr. RB, uh, uh, such a phenomenal conversation that we've had today. And I really, really hate that we can't continue it, but but maybe at some point we can continue it uh, for sure. Um, just all the wonderful things we've talked about, just just the pathology. You talked about the good, bad, and the ugly early on, Chris, and, and we all deal with that. Jose, uh, every one of us deals with mental health, whether we want to acknowledge it or not. And so that's really incredibly important. Uh, Dr. RV has given us some really great tools as it relates to how we deal with, who we deal with, uh, dealing with our children, dealing with our spouses, and just recognizing that there is loss, there is trauma, um, there's all those things that are there and that that is okay not to be okay is so incredibly important to us. So I would say this, that we we are on this journey along with many other people opening up the conversation and the dialogue about mental health. And it's so incredibly important that we continue to do that and that we broaden the conversation, that we bring more people into the conversation. Opportunities of a lifetime have to be seized within the lifetime of the opportunity. Uh, Linda Ravenhill said that, and here's an opportunity for us to seize uh, opening the doors, opening the floodgates, making sure that people can see and understand that this is normal. Normalcy, normalizing is one of the words that we talked about. Having that compassion, that accountability, treating people with dignity and respect is also incredibly important. And at the end of the day, if we can have love for one another, I think we're gonna be okay. I do appreciate each one of you all. I appreciate Providence uh, for allowing us this space and Dash, uh, Dash Radio also for giving us the platform. Thank you for all who are part of uh, the production of this wonderful uh, time together. And I hope to see you all soon. Blessings.